0: We're going to turn to Mark the seventh chapter. We're going to look today at verse 31 through 37. Would you stand with me as we honor God's Word and read the Bible together? If you'd like to read out loud, that's perfectly fine. I'm reading from the New International Version. I know there are other lesser valuable translations here. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. There some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could not talk or hardly talk and they begged Jesus to place his hands on him. After he took him aside away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven And with a deep sigh said to him, Ephaphatha, which means be opened. At this the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone. But the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He had done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear. And the mute speak. Lord, open our eyes today. Open our ears today. Let us hear, Lord. We thank you for your word. That it is quick and is powerful. And sharper than any two-edged sword. And divides between that which is error and that which is truth. It teaches us, guides us, protects us inspires us, humbles us, brings us into deep experiences of worship and praise and adoration for the great things you have done. I pray, Father, today that we will hear your word and we will hear it in a way that quickens our hearts, brings life to us, brings light to us. We bless you and praise you for the body of Christ. We thank you, Lord, that together, We hear and understand your word. We thank you for that, Lord. We ask for your spirit, your blessed Holy Spirit, the comforter, the other comforter, will come even today afresh, manifest himself to us and open us up to truth. As Jesus said, he will come. He will not speak of himself, he'll speak of me, and he'll lead you and guide you into truth. We want to be in truth today, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise the Lord. Please be seated. This is a very interesting text of Scripture. Matthew, in the synoptic parallel, gives something of an overview of this text. He doesn't really go to the same detail this text does, but he goes into an overview of this journey that Jesus took into into Phoenicia, into um, lower Syria, and specifically outlining Tyre and Sidon. And last time we were teaching in this particular text, we saw that just before this time frame, Jesus um, healed the daughter of a Seraphonician woman who was also a Gentile, who was also from the same region. She was in the city of Tyre, which is south of where this event takes place today, but um, still in in the land of the Gentiles. And as a result, we see this statement in Matthew This overview of Jesus left there and went along the Sea of Galilee. Then he went up on a mountainside and sat down. Great crowds came to him, bring the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and laid them at his feet, and he healed them. The people were amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled made well, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they praised the God of Israel." Now we might think that was that's just a really nice response for people to make when they see things that are attributed to the divine. But here we see these are gentile people making these gestures and this response. And notice it says to the most to praise to the God of Israel. For us to say those words is simple. But for a Gentile of this day to say those words and to think in that kind of a language is really a miraculous situation taking place because Jews and Gentiles were dire enemies. Uh, they, they hated each other. And we can go into a great deal of detail if you come on Wednesday nights and you've heard that, that section on why did Jonah run when God spoke to him and told him to go to Nineveh and preach repentance to the people there and we talked about what is the Jew-Gentile context of that text, of that, of that time frame and we see it's very similar to the context that still exists even to this time in Jesus' day. And Gentiles rejected, hated Jews, Jews hated and rejected Gentiles and this is something that was caused by God himself as he called the people of Israel out from the Gentiles Jewish people are Gentiles, just like everybody else, until God calls them. What made them unique was not some genealogical, genetic heritage. It was that God called them and called them his people. What makes us unique? God called us. God called us to be his own. That's what makes us unique, and that's what made the Gentiles unique when they became Jews. But over time, God said, I want you to stay separate. I want you to... Exclude yourself from any of their, their feasts or any of their relationships. No marriages, no friends, no houses. Don't go near them. Don't eat what they eat. Don't eat with them. Stay away from them. God said that in the Bible. It's in the law. That was the disposition that the Jewish people were to have toward the Gentile nations around them. And um, they, they did a very good job of it. And over time, it became codified in in the elders teaching, teaching of the elders. We spoke about that some time back when Jesus attacked the traditions of the elders and one of those was the the, the relationship of what was clean and unclean and most specifically what it's talking about is not clean hands, not clean clothes, not clean bodies, it's being with clean people and the unclean were the Gentiles, the clean were the Jews. So we see that same context here. And it's it's important that we see it because we also see something that's just it's just we just kind of drift into as we read this text, and that is that Jesus is on a trip, some kind of trip to the land of the Gentiles. Now they're Gentiles all throughout Israel at this by this time. They're they're mixed throughout because of the Roman Pax Romana, you know, peace and religion. And so all kinds of religions, all kinds of people, in Jerusalem they live there, all throughout the land of Israel they live there, and this, is, this land in Phoenicia is really the land where it's the vilest, the most dangerous to be a Jew in Phoenicia, let alone 12 Jews traveling together and trying to teach Gentiles about Jewish things. So with that context in mind, it's important to see that. We look to this text. And as we link these two things, we, it says the first word we see in verse 31 is the word then, at that time. Uh, though in a lot of the studies we've seen so far in, in Mark, we see the transitional words used like then or after that time frame or it came to pass, if you're looking at a King James context. And these kinds of words are described to talk about transitions, but here, it's a chronological transition. It's saying that what we're gonna see now comes right after what we saw in the last section. They're linking these sections together. It's, um, it's somewhat unique to Mark. He's, he does this thing with the word suddenly. He uses the word suddenly over and over again. It's a transition thing to him. And when you see suddenly, you realize it's something that is his next story, the next thing he's going to talk about in order for us to see a picture of Jesus or in the case of listening to his own audience being a Roman audience, a way in which he can encourage these suffering Christians in, the, in Rome under this time frame of the, um, the suffering that was caused by Nero Caesar um, prior to 70 A.D. and the destruction of Jerusalem. And so we see this word, then, used in a very similar way. But this, it's un, a little bit unusual for Mark to make, try to be chronological. He's, usually he's talking about idea. This idea follows this idea. Or he takes three ideas and puts them together, and he uses the, the narratives and the words of Jesus in order to describe his three points, his three sections. But he doesn't care whether they're chronological or not. So you look at the other Gospels, and it doesn't seem like they follow the same chronology as Matthew or Luke. And um, he doesn't seem to care about that. John cares nothing about that. And John's gospel, that's what makes it so unique, is he'll, he puts the feast coming into Jerusalem as the very first thing that you see happen in his narratives. Whereas all the other gospel writers put that toward the very end, during the Passion Week, and so forth. So we, we see the same tendency in him. So we start this out, all that to say, verse 31 starts with the word then and I only have four pages on it left, so you'll be I'll be soon with this word then in just a moment, okay? <laughs> you know when you go away for a while, you don't preach for a while. <laughs> you come back into the whole context, you think, well, oh, I really want to talk about that, 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 that. Instead of um yeah. Okay. Is it possible to get that out of this recording in there, Andres? But then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre, which was where the woman with the issue, uh, excuse me, the uh, Seraphonician woman was was there, in the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. Now that's a very interesting little uh, description of the path we took, right? But is a map behind me? Okay. Well, that's good. So you see up there with the top arrow, they started in Capernaum, they went up to Tyre, which is about 60 miles, 50 to 60 miles. And this first event with the Seraphonician woman took place in Tyre. Then they traveled 20 miles, over 20 miles north to Sidon. Then they traveled almost 100 miles from Sidon down through the Decapolis, down to the Decapolis and Bethsaida, across the, uh, the river Leontes. You see there, and all the way down, and it's a 120-mile trip. And some people say, this is the way, if you, for example, are in Washington, D.C., and you want to get to Richmond, Virginia, that the shortcut is through Philadelphia. So you see this huge horseshoe or fish hook or however you want to describe it of Jesus' movements all the way through this region of Phoenicia and Syria. And we ask the question, he makes it sound as if this is the way he got down there. And so the, the, the journey's aim is to reach the Decapolis but 120 miles later after he walks literally all the way through Phoenicia and Syria, or uh, lower Syria. And so we see that he is not trying to get to the Decapolis. You get the idea is he's aiming at the Decapolis so he's going to go the shortest way to get there. Well, you know, you turn on ways sometime, you know, when you're in traffic, and I've been on tr- in the traffic a lot on 81 in the last, you know, four weeks. And every once in a while, you run into those red lights in front of you, and so your way says, take this exit right here, and you're going on a road. You don't know where you are. You're going all the way around the place, and then suddenly you come out above the traffic. So maybe Jesus was trying to avoid the traffic between Sidon and Bethsaida. That's just a joke, okay? In case you're just trying to figure out what I'm talking about. Just joking a little bit here, but he's taking the long route, and it's very clear that he's not just trying to get to the Decapolis. He is trying to go through and work through this whole region. It's not just, you know, hold your breath for the, and hold your nose so that you can get from this Gentile spot down to this Gentile spot or then maybe get back into a Jewish context. He is pursuing a Jewish, excuse me, he's not pursuing a Jewish context. He's pursuing a Gentile context. This is the Messiah who's come for the Jews, right? But he's going to the heart of where the Gentiles are in this region. He's working the the land. Jesus is not traveling through the region. He's comprehensively covering the region from town to town, person to person, place to place, event to event. I'm instructed, I think we all should be, by the Gentile woman at the well. Do you remember that story? If you don't, you weren't here listening to a great sermon by Drew several weeks back. The Gentile woman. And it says, it starts out, it says, Jesus needed to go through Samaria. He needed to go through Samaria. And we find out the reason that he needed to go through Samaria was because of one Gentile woman in that region. One Samaritan woman in that region. Because after that, he just simply moves on, goes to the next place quite a distance away. And we see here this this curious kind of a dynamic between what Jesus is saying is his mission and then what his mission becomes. And when he just instructed his disciples He made it very clear to them that they were to go to the household of Israel. They're going to the Jewish people. When you go out, go to the Jewish people and heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons, freely your see, freely give, and preach what? The coming, starts with a K, kingdom of God. To preach the kingdom of God. And so, what is that kingdom of God to a Jewish person? The Messiah is going to come. He's going to throw off Satan, the, the oppressor, which is Rome. He's going to throw off the oppressor. He's going to rule in Jerusalem for thousands of years. That was the eschatological hope of the Jewish people that one day the Messiah would come. It still is the eschatological hope of many Jewish people. That he's going to come, and when he does, he's going to rule the world from Jerusalem. It's It's a very simple eschatological hope. And everyone who was attuned to it at all recognized that. And Jesus tells his disciples, when you go out to preach, this is what you're to do. Don't go into Gentile territories. Don't go where the Gentiles are. But go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, would you assume that the teacher is going to instruct his disciples to do something that he is not doing? He won't do? So we assume that Jesus is going wherever he's going. He's looking for the people of God, right? He's looking for Israel. He's looking for God's people, God's chosen people. Do you believe that? So here he is in Gentile territory, doesn't give much impression, there's a lot of Jews around, although with a Seraphim woman, it's clear that he was talking to the Pharisees that were following him while he is doing his mission to try to accuse him of something, and they had a lot of things to accuse him by when he told a Seraphonician woman that he, she used to go and be blessed because of the words that are coming out of her mouth. What were those words, by the way? He says, should we take the children's food, Israel? and give it to the dogs who are the dogs gentiles give it to gentiles and she spoke a very remarkable thing and she said even the crumbs that fall off the master's table can't they be given to the dogs we're not talking about dogs and cats now we're talking about people we're talking about an eschatological eschatology in it has to do with the end The end of something is coming and it's coming because of what Jesus the Messiah is bringing it to. The rulership of God is coming to the earth and Jesus the Messiah, the ruler, it's coming to Him and coming through Him. And how is it coming? It's coming to Gentiles who He is imparting blessings of God to and are even giving themselves to praise of God, the God of Israel. Gentiles are now coming into an awareness, an awakening that they may be God's people too. Doesn't that seem remarkable? Well, you Look around the room, it's not remarkable at all. Historically, every one of us is one of the recipients of that blessing. Every one of us. But are these really God's people? Is it really true that These people, or are they just kind of the collateral damage, the collateral result of Jesus' ministry? Well, let's just see if we can't investigate that together just a little bit. But it says in verse 32 there were some people brought to him, there, there, some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged Jesus to place his hand on him. A couple observations here. Here again is the same, number one, the same kind of revelation we saw with Jesus' conversation of the seraphimician woman. Gentile believers bringing their mute, crippled, and blind to a Jewish healer. Now, we've covered the ground of what was the general view of healers during this day. Well, healers were not necessarily Jewish or Gentile. They were just people who made their living in healing people and they all had either a cane, a stick or a robe, some kind of a robe some kind of adornment, something that they had that they could show this was the, the source of their power and they were called magicians. They were called people that were magicians and some were magicians for healing and some were for miracles and other, other things. For demon possession was a big one. And so here comes Jesus into this Gentile territory, and more than likely he's not looked at as the Messiah coming to his people any more than the Jewish people looked at him that way. He wasn't recognized as the Messiah. Isaiah 53, all the way back to Isaiah. There's nothing about him that attracted us to him, it says. And so he's just look-he's just the next guy who has a healing thing he can do. In this case, he probably had his garments. Remember the woman who kept with us the woman with the issue of blood, and what did she do? She said, if I can just what? Touch his robe, I'll be healed. And then turned out it, he, she found it was a real thing that was, she was touching, but she, it wasn't her touching him, it was him, his power touching her. And so we see this same kind of perspective. Now, it, when it says they begged Jesus to place his hand on him, Why would Jesus have to be begged to heal a person? Well, again, what was his instructions to his disciples? Don't don't go to Gentiles. Go to the household of Israel. And so if if that's their their, um, mandate, it's surely his mandate. And so what is he doing when he says they're begging him? Why would they beg him? If you can just kind of go back one. Phrase before that, why do you beg someone for something? Because they already told you they weren't going to do it. They already said they're not going to do a certain thing, and so you beg. Now, again, I've been on a trip and I've left several airports, and you see a lot of begging going at airports. Can you just please put me on this flight? Please, please. You know, we're saying, my wife's aunt had a stroke. We need to be on this flight. In fact, we need to sit together just for the fun of it. And and you look at them and and you think, this this isn't Jesus' people. They're not compassionate. Sorry, we only have those seats and go to the end of the line or wherever you want to go. Go away. Jesus is following the same mandate, but something's happening. I don't mean it's surprising Jesus, but he is looking for His people. And how is he identifying his people? How does he identify his ministry in the life of his disciples to know if they really knew he was the Messiah? He says to me, he says to them, Who do men say that I am? Well, some John the Baptist, some Elijah, some another prophet, da 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 da. He said, Yeah, but who do you say I am? Why is he doing that? So he can figure out who he is? You see, is Jesus trying to learn something or is he trying to teach something? And as a result, Peter stands up and says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. He recognizes his incarnate state and his mission all in one phrase. Remember what Jesus said? Jesus goes, wow. Let's have some solitude. God, what was that all about? No, he said, flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. This is something that is, it's a a characteristic of his people. What do they do? My sheep, what? Hear my voice. They come to me. I give them eternal life. No one can pluck them out of my hands or my Father's hands, and my Father and I are one. He hears one of His calling out to Him. They're begging Him. Lord, whatever their, their technique was, He's deaf. He can hardly talk. They begged Him to place His hands on them. And so we see this same kind of context of this tension between what, Jesus, what we think is Jesus' mission, that's to go gather all the Jewish people, and Jesus' mission is to go and gather all His people. All my people, all my, those one, they're called by my name. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. Not Jews that were lost, but that which is lost. Now please don't think I'm you know, anti-Jewish, okay? Any more than you say, Jesus is anti-Jewish. And he's been called that too. Jesus is anti-Jewish. You know, Christians are anti-Jewish. Let's don't go there. Okay, second observation. The Greek word translated, could hardly hear. Some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly hear. It's a word that's used only two times in the Bible. Once in a Hebrew context, translated into Septuagint, into Greek, using this word. And here, only two places in the Bible. And as I said, the, the, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament that was done you know, 120 years, something like that, before the coming of Christ. Old Testament was translated into, into Greek. And this is the word that appears in a text in the Old Testament. A text. And that text is Isaiah chapter 35, verse 5 and 6. Let's turn there. Actually, it's, it's actually 1 through 9, so we'll look at the, its entirety if you have a moment. Just turn there. Isaiah chapter 5. 35, excuse me. 35, verse one through nine. And notice the language that's used in Isaiah chapter 35, verse one through nine. Now I I will tell you from the beginning as you're going there that this text in Isaiah in several forms of current eschatology, notably dispensational uh, eschatology of the end, um, characterized by, I'd say probably the majority, of Christians, at least in the United States, is that this text is a millennial text. This text is for the time when, sometime in the future when Christ is reigning for a thousand years. And these are the characteristics of what you see during that thousand year period. And let's see, by listening, what these are, you say, well, I'm not sure what I am. Well, you will in a minute. You'll start seeing things that either don't seem familiar to you or they... Are very familiar to you. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. This look familiar to you? How many of you have ever read this before? When did you read it? Today. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. It was. Just, it was today. <laughs> Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it and the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of the Lord. The glory of Lebanon. Would it surprise you that Sidon, Tyre, Syria, this is ancient Lebanon. This area is where Lebanon, is Lebanon, that he's speaking about here. So this is the area that will rejoice They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened. The ears of the deaf, deaf, unstopped. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there. But only the redeemed will walk there. And those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. Mark uses this text. This is not me pulling this text. I didn't find this text. Mark uses this text. He quotes from this text. When a Gentile person that Jesus, has, they begged him to heal and begged him to be with them when he ministers to this person, Mark uses this text for his condition. It's the Greek same Greek word we find in this text when it says, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. It's the same Greek word. It's used one other time in the Bible. That's by Mark. This is not an accident. Mark is doing this because Mark is trying to show his hearers in Rome in the mid to late 60s A.D., that the persecution that they're receiving from the Gentiles, and some of them Gentiles themselves, converts to Christianity in Rome, that these are also, perhaps these people are some of God's people too. Don't abandon people. Don't say, well, I figured this out. Well, you don't qualify because you're this, that, or the other thing. You fall into certain categories, and therefore you're out And we're in. Especially people that are hurting you, they're trying to kill you. They're trying to. They're causing you suffering. think about Mark's motivation may be as he is using this particular text of Scripture in Isaiah and using the exact same words to describe a man that came that could not hear and was nearly couldn't could hardly even speak. Could hardly speak, and he uses the same word. This thing turns from just a story that Mark's talking about to an eschatological statement to both them in Rome and to us now and even in the context of the people that were there. These people were the Lebanese people that Isaiah was talking about. That in the future, it might not be called Lebanon, but in this region of the Gentiles, the Messiah is going to come, the Lord's going to come. He's going to look for people that he has come to save. Even among the Gentiles, there'll be salvation. This may not be any news for anybody else, but boy, for these people, this is big news. Paul, by the time Paul reaches this subject, when he gets into the early text of Ephesians and talking about the Jew and Gentile problem, what does he say the solution to the Jew and Gentile problem is? This wall of separation between the two. Do you call this? The wall of separation? What's the solution? Look to Jesus. How do you... Get through a wall Well, you can... How do you solve a divide between you and another person? You look high enough until there's sky and then Jesus is there. You look at Jesus and he unites you. No matter what walls are down here on this plane, Jesus unites us. The key to our unity is not finding similarities between ourselves. It's finding Jesus. It's drawing to him. The writer of Hebrews says, look To Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, especially when you find yourself in the difficulties of trials. Look at him who endured such contradiction from sinful men. Look to Jesus. Mark is saying the same thing. What would you say to a person who's suffering? Look at Jesus. You know, some people get sick and they don't get well. If they have enough cognizant, you know, recognition. What do they do? How do you minister to them? Well, you try to get them healed. You go in and get their bodies healed. What if they just keep laying there day after day after day? They start getting discouraged. They start becoming even angry. What do we do for them? Look at Jesus. Look to Jesus. There's a day coming that Jesus has prepared for us, and no one can take that moment away. No suffering, no power, can take that away from us, that reunion with Christ. And we're with Christ where we unify with one another at the same time. This is is a powerful statement. Mark's making this statement. You know, when I pull a text and I say, well, this text is like the, I want to use this text to illustrate something we're talking about. Why do you think we do that? Because there's these similarities to it, right? It makes our point. And Mark's point that he is showing about this person who can't hear or talk is that this is, and they happen to be in Syria. Just coincidentally, they happen to be in Syria. And they just happen to be with the Messiah. And he just happens to be looking for his people. And he's saying, "Don't, don't make these shallow determinations about who God's people are. Paul goes so far as to say not all Israel is natural Israel. Israel, the people of God. Not all the people of God are from some kind of natural genealogical descent. Not all persons who who are considered Israel. The Israel of God, Paul talks about that in Galatians. On this same subject, that there's neither male nor female, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, but all are one in Christ. And he calls that group the Israel of God. In this new covenant context, we're not separated from people because of male, female, slave, free, Jew, Gentile. That doesn't separate us. We're not separated by anything from Christ. Any of those who are in Christ, we're not separated from them either. Sorry I'm getting so worked up here. You should have been with me when I was studying this stuff, man. I was really getting worked up. <laughs> it's a supreme significance for Mark's presentation of Jesus. This is from um, James Edwards in his pillar commentary, Gospel Courier to Mark. And he says, the allusion to Isaiah 35 is of supreme significance for Mark's presentation of Jesus. Not only because the restoration of speech to a you know, a, a person who couldn't hear I've, I've made a commitment. I may commit, i do not got to use Greek words in my sermons. Now I have one Greek guy, maybe I should, I don't know. <laughs> but he, he well, I I put in my notes. The speech of this person signals the eschatological arrival of the day of the Lord. But also because the desert wastelands of Lebanon Will receive the joy of God. The regions of Tyre and Sidon are, of course, precisely the Lebanon of Isaiah 35. Jesus' healing of this particular person in the Decapolis becomes the first fruits of the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 35, verse 10. This isn't just using it to prove a point. This is the fulfillment of Isaiah, the prophet, 500 years before this, prophesying this. It's being fulfilled in Christ. Salvation has come. The Gentiles. The ransomed of the Lord. As it says in the text of Isaiah 35. The ransomed of the Lord. They'll enter Zion with singing. And what is Zion? Zion is the kingdom of God. It's the invisible church. It's the temple of the Holy Spirit. Not built with hands. Built in the hearts. In the unity of God's called people and God's chosen people in this new covenant context. Do you hear me? Salvation thus comes to the Gentile world in Jesus who is God's eschatological redeemer from Zion. As we have noted before, the only categories adequate for Mark to describe the person and work of Jesus are ultimately the categories of God. Once again, as in the story of the Seraphim woman, Salvation is from the Jews. Jesus didn't say to the woman in Samaria, at the well, salvation is for the Jews. He said salvation is from the Jews. There's no text in Scripture that says salvation is only for the Jews. Old Testament, New Testament, God had compassion on Gentiles in the Old Testament that came into Judaism through baptism and confession, they were converts. They weren't called full Jewish people, but they, they had fellowship in the covenants of God. And now they've been they've, they're not only just people that, that had some access, but they have full access, Paul says in the second chapter of Ephesians. In John chapter 4 salvation is from the Jews. And here, this person who is from the Jews comes bringing salvation, bringing healing to this poor. Man. And it almost makes the, it doesn't really matter how he heals him after this, right? I mean, once you know that, once you see that, it's the most glorious thing about the text. But Mark goes on to say, and after he took him aside, away from the crowd, you know, again, why wouldn't Jesus want to just say this to the whole crowd? Why? Because he found the one he came for. Why didn't he just Call the whole town in when the demoniac at Gennesaret was relieved of the demons. Why didn't he do that? Why didn't he take him in his boat with him and say, when he gets in his next big crowd, look at this guy. This guy used to have demons. Look at him now. Why didn't he take him? Because he went there to gain the one person that was going to reach all those other people. Why isn't God calling many? Because he only needs a few of his him aside away from the crowd he didn't want the crowd to get the idea that he was just the new magician in town they really would have pushed in on him then you know yeah i can heal people say today it's jesus will to heal everybody well you know you make the stupid unspiritual response by saying well if that's true then why isn't everybody healed well that's because of everybody well how did everybody get sick then did they say i want to be sick I mean, if it's just up to everybody, we don't need anybody to be that. It just seems simple to me. It seems simple. say that around certain groups and you're simply excused from the room. But he took him away from the crowd. He doesn't need the affirmation of a crowd. Jesus doesn't need to call himself the light of the world when everybody's listening. That text in John where he finally says I am the light of the world where does he say that he says that after the feast is over after the candles are out while he's down into the in the temple when it's dark and he says to 12 men I'm the light of the world he missed his cue his timings off he should have walked up and all those people are standing looking at the lights around Jerusalem and stood up and saying I am the light of the world he wouldn't have to wait so long to get crucified he doesn't need a crowd. You don't need a crowd to be effective. You don't need everybody agreeing with you to share your faith. Don't hide your bushel, afraid of people. Jesus doesn't need a crowd. He took him aside, away from the crowd, put his finger into the man's ears. And he spit. I don't know where he spit. Didn't really tell us where he spit. It's like the, you know, another character sitting by the road and he can't walk. He, can't, he couldn't see either. That's what he was blind. And it simply says that Jesus walked up to him and spit on the ground. Now, if he's a, if he's a Gentile or something like that or somebody that's not worthy of salvation, you imagine this Messiah, this healer walking up going, <laughs> and going, all and the, all the Pharisees go, yay, he's our man. And he's spitting on, and just to make it worse, he gets down, and he goes, He rubs his finger like that. And he goes, okay, there. <laughs> and, and there. Now go wash yourself. Doesn't say you're gonna be healed, just go wash yourself. The guy, of course you gotta wash yourself. You got mud in your face. He goes to the place and he is he can see. <laughs> what do they say in hospitals? Wash your hands. Wash your hands, wash your hands. Daycares, wash your hands, wash your hands. Wash your hands. Everybody wash your hands. Why? Because there's germs. Don't, keep your, don't put your hands in your mouth and touch people. Why? Because there's germs. Do you think Jesus had germs? <laughs> I take Jesus' spit in my mouth anytime I can get it. It's like some healing bomb. You should just should read It's like a comic book sometimes, some of the stuff you read about people saying things. He shouldn't have done that because it he wasn't healthy. <laughs> uh, his spit, mixed with mud or just straight, is pretty powerful. And he touched the man's tongue with his spit. Come on, anybody need to have your hearing fixed? No. And he touches his ears. He touches his tongue with this spit. And looked up to heaven with a deep sigh and said, Epothetha, Epothotha to him. Be healed. Be opened. And surely, if that didn't, if there's, not a, if there's not an excitement about what we've heard so far, can you imagine a person who is deaf and can't speak and the first thing he hears is the last part of a word that says, be opened. Whatever part of that word he heard, he heard it with his own ears. And when, he, when his mouth was opened, what came out? The praises of God. When Salvation comes. When healing comes, it produces something. People say, well, how do you know when someone's saved? Because they're Thankful. They're full of praise. They're full of thanks. What is so miserable about our life that when we're saved, it doesn't last long enough before you're back in the same miserable place again? The point here is, whether you are ill or not ill, you have something to praise Him for, and that is your salvation. Oh, just imagine that. He looks up to heaven. The whole crowd goes. Well, there wasn't a the crowd at this point, but maybe the disciples looking around. He looked up to heaven. with a deep sigh. Be open. At this, the man's ears were opened. His tongue was loosed. And he began to speak plainly. What do you think he wanted to talk about? The demoniac has thousands of devils thrown out of him. What do you think he wants to talk about? The woman at the well, all of her major sins are told to her. Her indiscretions are told to her. And she's awakened by living water. And what does she want to do? The disciples are rolling up to the scene. I don't want if you get in detail from Jerusalem, but they roam up the scene, and where's she? She is gone, man. She's a town. Telling everybody what she had heard and seen. Began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone. but the more he told them that the more they kept talking about it tell someone who just got saved you can't talk about this don't put me around non-christian people and say don't talk about God because I'll just wait for a question and just answer a question that's all you got to do you don't have to to push anybody just wait until they ask you a question you know, like people, I've had this a lot. And, and I'm very good at this fake thing I do call being happy and smiling. And they say, what are you so happy about? <laughs> That's an amazing question to be asked, isn't it? Why are you so happy? What makes you so happy? Why aren't you worried? You know, whatever their question is, tell them Why? if someone comes up and they say, you can't talk about this, talk about what? You, you can't preach anymore. I'm not preaching to anybody. What are you doing then? I'm just asking questions. Like what? <laughs> Ask me a question. The more he did this, and you might look at this as something negative, right? Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone, but the more he did, the more they kept talking about it. I think it's don't tell somebody that a magician did this. Don't tell somebody the guy with a magic cape down there did this or the big stick or, you know, some kind of a special way, some incantation that they know. Don't tell them that. Just tell them exactly what happened. That the Lord did something. The Lord healed me. Or just go talk plainly to people who know that you have bad, you can't hardly talk. Just go do that. Just show them what has happened to you. And they notice people were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Mm. The new covenant context is literally opening before this man's eyes. And there, it's opening before the eyes of people who have been assured that Jewry, Jewry hates them. And anybody who's a Jew hates them because they have to, because their God hates them. Now through this Gentile's eyes being open, he's manifesting and demonstrating. He's just not somebody that kind of You're throwing out medicine to everybody, to the people that really deserve it, and he just got a little lick of medicine. This isn't collateral damage. This is God's man. This is God's person, God's child. All we like sheep have turned away. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. My sins were at the cross. I didn't just get... Jesus didn't cover all sins and I get the opportunity to do something. My sins were there. He saved me from my sins. He found me. I didn't find Him. I was looking for Jesus. I'd still be looking. I looked. Well, we all have a point of looking around. It's not our effort. It's not by works of righteousness that we have done. But according to his mercy he saved us. By the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. It's his work. He's done everything well. He's done the good work. Oh, okay, he's done good things, but he's found his own. What does it say about the 99? When he goes out and he finds that one that's his, all oh, heaven rejoices. the coming of that one lost sheep. That one that belongs to him. My sheep hear my voice. Everyone the Father has given me, they'll all come to me. I don't have to go running after people. I don't have to try to force them. I'm trying to to convince them. I don't have to try to, you know, manipulate them. You ought to hear John Masiago's testimony about how his early evangelism went. He would go out and find people and convince them, I'm going to this building on Sunday. You want to go along with me? You mean church? Well, it's not really church, no. It's just, it's just a place I like to go. There's a lot of people, real friendly people there. You'd like to, you'd like it. Come on, go with me. And they come walking in here and they get saved during the service. That was his that was his method of evangelism. He didn't hardly know the gospel then, but he knew that if you came in that building, if someone's gonna get saved. They get around the Christian people, they're gonna get saved. <laughs> what a context we're in, ladies and gentlemen. We're in the context of a new covenant. And that covenant has been enacted. And we see these roots, these rudimentary examples of this covenant coming to men as it came to us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Praise the Lord. God bless you.